This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about large-scale wildfires and how they impact fish and other aquatic life downstream. It's a good show recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. So most people don't think about the interactions that fire has with floods, but fire kind of creates this perfect condition for floods to happen. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Natalie Gillard. Natalie is a graduate student in watershed sciences at Utah State University. There, she studies how wildfires impact fish and other aquatic life downstream of burned areas. We begin our interview with Natalie explaining what the role of fire has been in fire-adapted ecosystems and how some of those roles have changed with human land use and climate. So fire has a lot of benefits for forested areas. In fact, forests have really adapted well to having fires. However, forests are only adapted to having a certain fire regime. So there are some forests that really need low severity fires frequently, but there are other forests that need higher severity fires, less frequency. So those low severity fires that come through remove understory litter, they remove bushes and shrubs, and that can restore some of the habitat for native species. It reduces the amount of water uptake, so there's more water available for other animal species and native vegetation there. It removes invasives and can actually act to mitigate disease. What kind of forests are generally adapted to low severity fires? Pine forests are well adapted to low severity fires, but aspens are not. So aspens would not even do well with a low severity fire. And and so with low severity, what would that look like if we were watching a fire burn? Low severity fire is really going to leave most of the vegetation intact. It might char a few leaves, but most of the trees will be standing. The trees will live through it. You're still going to have a lot of greenery. But a high severity fire, it's going to look like a bomb went off. Everything is going to be burnt to the ground. All of your trees are going to be dead. There's going to be no green, and it's going to take several years for that forest to be able to grow back. What's a high severity fire doing for an ecosystem that's adapted to it? A high severity fire is not going to have the same advantages of a low severity fire because it has come through and killed everything. You will have mitigation of disease, but that's because everything is gone. And you will have mitigation of invasives because everything is gone. There are some pine trees that have pine cones that only produce seeds and open up after fire. So that is an example of how a forest is adapted to maybe a low or moderate severity fire. But high severity fire would just kill everything. (laughs) And we're getting more high severity fires as we move into these increases of fire frequency and area burned. Yeah, tell me more about that. So so some systems systems are adapted to different levels of fire, but how are the fires that we're seeing on the landscape, what are those looking like? 
Fires in the western region of the United States are generally becoming larger, they're burning more area, and they're also becoming more frequent. Studies have shown that within the western United States, the fire season has increased by approximately 78 days, which is huge. That's about three and a half months. And that is primarily due to an increase in aridity. So because there is less moisture content, you're getting earlier summer seasons and fall is lasting longer. So you're just having a longer time for fires to start up and it's getting harder and harder to control them because that vegetation is ready to ignite and when it goes, it goes. A lot of people think that forest management practices and the suppression of fire has really played a role in that increase in fire frequency in area. However, USGS actually did a study that showed that wasn't explaining as much as they originally thought. It is it explaining some of it though? Some of it, about 30%, I believe. And so because this is an aridity driven phenomena, would we expect it to to increasingly get larger and more severe as aridity increases? Yes, we are. We are expecting no halt in the increase in fire frequency and area burned. Unfortunately, I think that these large fire seasons are just going to become a trend that are only going to grow, especially in the western United States. And Utah repeatedly has had, Twitchell was its largest wildfire in 2010, but that was outdone. And even last summer, we had Utah's fourth largest wildfire, and that was the Dollar Ridge fire. So you specifically study um, hydrologic interactions with fire and how is fire interacting with water and specifically just how water is moving on the landscape? So most people don't think about the interactions that fire has with floods, but fire kind of creates this perfect condition for floods to happen. In forested areas, if they're really covered in trees, a lot of the water coming down in the form of precipitation through rain or snow, about 30% of it may actually never hit the ground. So when you remove the vegetation, you're actually getting a considerably higher volume of water just generally there. You're also getting rid of evapotranspiration, which is the use of vegetation to release water back into the atmosphere. Another thing that is not well known is that ash, if vegetation burns at a high enough temperature, is actually water repellent. So it's stopping water from seeping into the soil and it's creating a ton of overland flow that's entering the river and making the floods much larger. So because you're having more water reach the surface, less of it being emitted out into the atmosphere and less being absorbed by the soil, you're getting this amazingly large increase in flooding. So people are aware of that, and there's some ways to calculate the magnitude of change that that will have after a fire, but it creates huge problems for transportation of toxins, transportation of nutrients in the water. The larger floods are able to carry more sediment, leading to massive landslides and debris flows which is basically just hill slope failure, which can be good for native habitat. Because water is now able to carry so much more sediment than it could have, it's bringing sands and large boulders and everything in between back into the river system. It's also carrying large woody debris, which can be really good for natural fish habitat. 
The problem is that the proportion of fines, so sands are smaller, sand silts, clays, is very large. And that can be really harmful for native fish species. When you get a bunch of sands into a new river system, it clogs all the pores in the soil. But this can be a problem because fish, one, need to be able to dig rets, which is just basically a nest for their eggs. Two, that when the eggs hatch, the fry, the baby fish, need to be able to swim through the pores and make it into the mainstream of the river. And three, water needs to be able to move through the pores of the soil because water is carrying dissolved oxygen and nutrients that the eggs need to have. The input of fines can really stop these mechanisms from happening. So when you're talking about these large floods with fire and then their downstream impacts, is this with every fire? What kind of scale are we of a fire do you need to start seeing these big impacts? Typically, you need a moderate to high severity fire to see these impacts. I recently looked at fires of different severities, everything from ranging from 100% low severity to about 20% high severity. And in the low severity fires, we see minimal biological impacts. And that's because a lot of the vegetation is still there, the soil is still stable, and we don't really see a change in flooding or flood magnitude. But it's when we get any level of high severity fire, we're going to start seeing those impacts. The Twitchell Fire, which was in Utah by Brian Head, in a specific basin that we studied, it burned 16% at high severity, higher moderate severity. However, we saw about a six-fold magnitude increase in flooding. So if you think about a 16% high severity area, that doesn't seem that large, but that's increasing flood magnitude by six. And is that at a certain time of year? Intense storms usually follow wildfires, and there is a couple different theories why. Some people say it's because the storm is already going through orographic lifting, the air is forced over the mountain range, and it becomes unstable, and it is extra unstable because of the black surface created by all the ash. But we do see this trend in large storms following areas that have been affected by wildfire. And so this runoff ratio, or this increase in flooding, has been seen to last almost a decade if it's a hot enough wildfire. So the Twitchell fire took about 10 years to return to regular flood events. Wow, that's incredible. So after a fire and then you get this flood event, what does it look like coming down these streams that otherwise would in these mountain areas would be running pretty clear, right? A debris flow is basically a river of mud. A river of mud and boulders and trees, a debris flow is going to take everything down with it. So you might have a small tributary, you know, a really small stream that the system is just going to completely blow out after a fire. And it can drastically change the landscape in just minutes. And so how does that change in in the structure of these rivers and streams how does that impact the the fish species living there or other living things in these riparian habitats so wildfires have both positive and negative impacts on fish habitat there are positive benefits in that it resupplies woody debris it can change river connectivity it 
can bring in spawning gravel. Any, Pretty much anything less than 11 millimeters can be good for fish as long as they can still move the grain size to dig their red. But it can also be a detriment in that it brings in a lot of grains that are too small. That will clog the pores of the soil, which will stop nutrients from reaching the eggs. It will stop the fry from emerging from below sediment grains. And it can bring in too many large grains so that fish can no longer dig reds. Another thing that people often don't think about is if a fire burns at high severity, it's really getting rid of a lot of the shade that's affecting the stream, which is changing stream temperature as well. And this is a big problem because a few degrees might not make a big difference to us, or we might not notice that at all in the summer time when we're playing in the stream, but fish have a high sensitivity to changes in temperature, and it can actually act as a physical barrier. They will not go in a place that is too hot for them. And this causes a problem because it can increase the habitat for invasive species. Invasive species tend to be more generalist species, and so they can be better adapted to living in these warmer temperatured areas. Break that down for me a little bit. I mean, were high severity fires in the past common enough to to have any kind of selective pressure on the fish that ended up in these streams below forested areas that would presumably burn? I don't think so because fire actually is a very important part of forest history. And so forest before were very patchy and the patches actually acted as fire breaks. So they didn't spread as far as they may have today. So fire data usually dates from about 1984. That's when we started having good satellite data and started keeping track of fire size. And from 1984, fire area and frequency has been increasing. However, pre-1984 data that is generally regarded as less reliable shows that fire area actually was much larger than we see it today. Fire area burned every year was a very large area and we were able to suppress it. So it went down a lot and we were able to keep it down for a significant amount of time. But now there is so much understory and there are no natural fire breaks and everything is becoming so much drier that the acreage burned each year is now increasing to levels before we started suppressing it. It's starting to revert back to what it was before. So wouldn't that imply that there's an adaptation towards that? But not high severity fires. Oh, okay. Because if they happened frequently, then you're getting those low severity fires that just come and clear out the underbrush, clear out the litter, and make habitat for native species. And that's really helpful. But it's when you get these high severity fires that destroy everything, that leave nothing left behind, things can't grow back, the soil is destroyed, so no vegetation will grow because they... They have nothing to grow into. And so this this fire that we had here in Utah, you know, you described all of these effects on, on aquatic species, on fish species, and specifically native fish species. What are you seeing now in these streams? Unfortunately, oftentimes, none of the fish survive. Ash actually sticks to the gills of fish, and they can suffocate. And that's a huge problem that they have immediately. But then we have... The loss of habitat and the temperature change on top of that. In the Trail Mountain Fire, in Strawberry Reservoir was a blue ribbon 
fishery for trout habitat that was completely destroyed in the 2018 fire Trail Mountain. Brian Head was also a blue ribbon fishery that was completely destroyed because ash is so harmful to the fish communities. A lot of fires require people to come in and restock the fish. Tell me about the process. Okay, so you have this one big fire event that really reshapes the stream, and it sounds like it takes a long time to recover, but what does that recovery process look like, and how involved are humans being in trying to get these streams back to where people want them to be? I think that there's quite a bit of involvement. People have a lot of investment in fish. People like to fish. It's a recreational activity that people enjoy. The state makes money off of it. I know that the Forest Service has done some efforts to restore and mitigate restoration and help facilitate healthy habitat again, but we could be better at it. With my research, I'm trying to create and working with an entire team to create a predictive model of where sediment is going to end up in the river. And that will help us determine where erosion is going to happen and where sediment deposition is going to happen, where the sediment is going to settle. And that will help us determine where is good fish habitat going to be and where is it going to be harmed. And so if we can do that, then we can get better at restoring fish habitat and getting them back into a healthy ecosystem faster. What is the process of putting that kind of model together? What does that look like? It requires a lot of data. A predictive model in this case really requires knowing a lot of how factors and variables interact with each other. How much impact does fire severity have? Can fire severity alone predict the change in flood magnitude? And it does, it has a very strong relationship. If you know the fire severity, you will be able to estimate approximately how much your flood magnitude will increase. Geologic components are really important. What is your rock compressive strength, which is what is the erodibility of the mountain that you're working in, or how steep. If you have a steeper mountain, you're more likely to get a lot of sediment coming off of your hill slopes. If you have a much less steep area, you're probably it's going to be harder to move that sediment. How do you see land managers using these kinds of predictive models? So predictive models will help land managers quickly identify hot spots, erosion and deposition, so habitat creation and destruction, and that will allow them to better plan mitigation, restoration. If one spot in a river is going to repeatedly get blown out every single time there, there's a flood, we should not put a fish population there. The Forest Service did go in after the Twitchell Canyon fire of 2010 and try to reintroduce some large woody debris to help the fish population. So they are actively trying to help after. Explain to me how that would help them because I thought they were all I thought there was a lot of that coming down with the flood. So it can deposit large woody debris or it can blow it all out of the system and nothing is left. Fair enough. Your work has looked at when these floods from these fires are coming down, how it's affecting the fish and how you can figure out how to go in and restore habitat and get management goals back. But in the bigger picture, is there things that can be done to reduce the severity of these fires? Prescribed fire will help a lot. However, it's hard to perform prescribed fires because you have to take into account air quality of that day, wind speed of that day, 
There's a ton of hurdles. You have to get a lot of signatures, but they have been shown to help a lot. And that's probably the best mitigation technique we can do to help stop high severity, large wildfires. You've been giving awesome examples of these impacts to fish habitat in kind of northern Utah. Is this, I mean, presumably this is something that's affecting all of the West and including us down here in southeastern Utah. Yes, the LaSalle's are extremely vulnerable to wildfire. They have steep mountainsides. They have fish populations. Um, And if there is a wildfire that goes up, the trees are very close together in that area. There's not a lot of patchiness to the system right now. And it, it would probably burn very hot for a while. And it would also, a problem in the LaSalle's is that it might be hard to stop it. It might be hard to get firefighters up there. Have you been involved in seeing how effective any of these reintroduction efforts are? It takes so long for the system to return to normal, even with human interference, even with human help. So many things change in these systems that it just takes years to rebuild them. There was a fire in Zion that happened, and the water quality did not return back to normal for years and years. And Zion isn't even a particularly forested area, and it still has major implications on biodiversity there. How far stream are these implications going? generally? That's a really good question. That's a part of my research is seeing how far downstream the effects of fire are felt. And it seems like at least several miles the first year, but it will probably be more in the following years. There's large flooding carrying more sediment, toxins, nutrients, and that gets carried X distance downstream. But when you get more water the next year, when that is still a highly vulnerable hill slope, you're going to get it transported down farther and farther. And so what really needs to happen is a long-term monitoring program to see how far downstream the effects are really being felt. Is it often that that the effects are coming down far enough to, from, you know, higher mountain areas down to affect communities that are living near them? After the 100-year flood that happened near Boulder, Colorado, a couple years ago. That water was so contaminated in Boulder Creek that people were advised not to swim in it for months after it happened. One problem for more rural communities is if they're on a well system and there is water contamination, then that is going to be a huge problem and directly impact that entire community. What got you interested in studying how fire and floods and sediment impact fish communities. So I'm actually from Northern California, where we have a ton of fires every year. And I grew up near the Sacramento River and just kept seeing fire after fire. And every year we had a big fire. And then all of a sudden, California was having fires in December, which was insane. And then the Paradise Fire and fires are just becoming an an increasing problem and affecting everyone. It has lasting effects that people don't think of. The flooding. Flooding is not something that people usually think of following a fire, but it's very common. Unless you have a 100% low severity fire, you're going to have flooding. 
It's also a problem for reservoirs. Utah has a ton of reservoirs. And actually, Utah alone has lost over 20% of its reservoir capacity due to that increased volume of sediment entering reservoirs. And then finally, uh, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? I really enjoy communicating. I think it's really important, and I think that scientists need to step up their communication skills. I think communicating science to the public is so important, or just to anybody who's been affected by fires. We're all affected by fires. We all In Utah, we see the smoke from fires every year. They're in our backyards. They affect our friends and family. They affect the places that we love to go. I like thinking that there's hope, that we can help. We can change things. Fires are going to be increasing, but I think that there are a lot of things that we can do to help the surrounding communities, both fish and humans, not be so harmed when they come through. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for talking to us about your work, and um, it's really interesting to learn about all of these effects of fire on our systems. Thank you. To listen to this interview with Natalie Gillard again, or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, sciencemoab.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, and KZMU.